Hey everybody, it's Alex and Reagan. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge Podcast. There is no such thing as objective journalism. This is one of my quibbles with the industry, I think, is that a lot of times reporters are hamstrung by ideals that make no sense now. But so that's, I think, the main difference is conservative outlets will say, you know, we are conservative or it will just be very apparent. Liberal outlets will say, you know, we are liberal, we are progressive. And then, you know, you have like the Politicos and the New York Times. They'll, they won't pretend to have a bias, but again, everything has a bias. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Pod. Today we have for you Matthew Foldy. Matthew Foldy is a conservative journalist. He used to work at the Washington Free Beacon. Right now he's working for The Spectator, where he's doing a number of stories for them. Previously, he worked for the House Republican Super PAC as their rapid response director. And he's also run for local office in Chicago and was one of the youngest elected officials in history there. And he ran for Congress in 2022 in the Republican primary in a very competitive district, and he did not come out ahead. But he raised a lot of money, and he was endorsed by both Rep McCarthy, who is now, of course, Speaker McCarthy, and then also Donald Trump Jr. So the reason we brought Matthew on today was to do a more nationally focused episode on the GOP. We talk about what went wrong for the GOP across the board in 2022 on the national level. We talk about the really crazy speaker election that happened. It took 15 ballots for Kevin McCarthy to come speaker. Of course, he also had to agree to things like, for example, one member could vote basically to oust him or, you know, up a vote as speaker, which is not something that we've seen before. We also talk about, because of course, he does describe himself as a conservative journalist, is what's basically the difference between progressive journalism, conservative journalism, and normal journalism. So I actually think he gives a really interesting answer on that, that I know, I think that you guys will be excited to hear, especially since we focus so much on journalism with this show. And then we also talk about 2024 and basically who and when he thinks folks will start declaring. So really GOP-focused episode this time around. I'm also really hoping to have us do an episode focused on the Democratic national side of things in terms of what went right for them in 2022 and how things look for 2024. So definitely look forward to that episode in the future. But thanks for tuning in. I hope that you all enjoy the episode. We'll go ahead and dive right into it. The new year has brought some changes to Harang Long Gary Rednick PC. For decades, our clients, colleagues, and friends have called us Harang Long, and now we're making it official. We have shortened our name to Harang Long PC. We also have moved our Portland office into larger space to accommodate our growing group of legal professionals. Other than that, we're the same as we've always been, a client-focused team with uncommon experience handling matters at the intersection of law, politics, and public policy, with offices in Portland, Eugene, and Salem. To learn how Harang Long can help you achieve your goals, check out our website at harang.com. That's H-A-R-R-A-N-G.com. All right, everybody. Thanks so much again for joining us today. We have a very national GOP-focused episode for us. We have Matthew Foldy. Matthew is a GOP political consultant. He's a journalist. He ran for Congress at one point. We were very close in D.C. He's very popular on the Twitters, if you want to follow him there. So, Foldy, how are you doing today? Guys, it's great to be with you here in Maryland. I am a longtime East Coast listener to the Oregon Bridge podcast, so I'm excited to be chatting with you guys today. And just to get the YouTube plug in there, this man is in a fireman's jacket right now with also a tie on. So, Foldy, where exactly are you? 
<laughs> well, it's important, uh, you know, to make sure everyone subscribes to your YouTube channel, as Titus has been telling me for quite some time. So I am here in the Rockville Volunteer Fire Department, where I am our public information officer. So hopefully we don't have any sirens going off during our interview today. But uh, that's where I am on Monday nights. Gotcha. Yeah, well, hopefully we don't blow any eardrums. So Foldy, give us a little bit. And of course, we'll put your background within the bio. But I think that you have a pretty special and pretty unique background from an activist side of thing. And you ran for Congress, you've been in journalism, but tell people a little bit about how you got involved in politics, where you first started working in politics, maybe too, that would be helpful. And then how that led you to journalism and then running for Congress. So I got involved in politics right here in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is a deep blue enclave in what is, you know, already a fairly blue state. But back in high school, I was already very politically active going back to the 2012 presidential campaign and some other primaries that were going on there. Then by 2014, as I was graduating high school, that was when this guy named Larry Hogan, who people had not really heard of that much decided that he was going to throw his hat in the ring and run for governor here in Maryland. And I remember he his announcement was initially delayed because of a snowstorm. And then when it was rescheduled, I went with my family. And as we were leaving the event, I said, he's going to win. He's going to be our governor. And everyone, of course, thought I was crazy, asked me why. I said, look, you know, as you guys know, I've been going to all of these Republican events around Maryland. And it's usually the same people at every event. And I barely even recognize a third of the people at this guy's announcement. So, you know, if this guy is going to be able to pull these kinds of people in on day one, I have confidence he'll be able to, to do this in November. Ultimately, obviously, he ended up winning. And I moved by then. I was in Chicago going to school. Then I got involved in Illinois politics in the 2014 cycle also. And then by 2016, the Chicago Republican Party asked me, begged me actually on multiple occasions to run for local office there. So I did. I still remain the youngest elected official ever in Chicago. When I was 19, I was elected as the ward committee man in Chicago's fifth ward. It was a wild, great experience. You know, we had to uh, sue during my election, my opponent, because in Chicago and in a lot of states and localities dominated by machine politics, you have a lot of signatures required to get on the ballot. And we pulled my opponent's signatures and saw that in the eyes of the Chicago or Illinois GOP lawyers, they were it was one of the most fraudulent written signatures ever where they were either heavily from out of the ward, entire families surreptitiously would have the same signature, there would be missing information, things like that. So, you know, we reached out to my, or they reached out to my opponent and said, you know, you can go to jail for election fraud, or you can withdraw. So I pulled an Obama, you know, he won his first election by disqualifying all of his opponents. And I won a 100% landslide and made some history in the progress. So then I stayed there through 2018. When I graduated, worked on the governor's race there, then moved back to Maryland, where I was working. Well, before that, I briefing to Regnum, I went to Israel, where my aunt was running for Knesset, which is Israel's parliament, worked on her campaign in the first of the many elections that your viewers may be familiar with. It was, I think, the first of six elections that ultimately got you know, the status quo of what they were before, which is Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister. Then I came back and then I worked at the House Republican Super PAC. After we had an awesome 2020 cycle there, I think we netted 17 seats. Then I went over to do journalism at the Washington Free Beacon. And as I, one of the stories that I covered that actually did have a lot of significance in Oregon was how both in D.C., in the Capitol, and in district offices around the country, Democrats had literally not been working due to the coronavirus even though they were all flaunting, you know, mass requirements and things like that. But they had closed all of their constituent service offices around the country. Their Capitol Hill offices literally would have like feet 
of newspapers piled up in front of them because no one was there. And this, you know, is one of my frustrations with journalism is that there is a designated Capitol Hill press corps, which I have never been a member. As I was doing this reporting, I would see these journalists walk by these closed offices and they would think, oh, there's nothing to see here. This is at a time when the Capitol was on complete lockdown. You know, you could not be there if you were not escorted. If you were a constituent of, you know, Senator Wyden, you could not get in unless someone from the staff was walking you around, which was a huge really? change. That's and now now that, you know, the new Congress is in session, you could walk around freely in the government, which you should, of course, be able to. But, you know, as part of the reporting I did, there was one of the things I included was how Kurt Schrader, his government office that, of course, Lori chavez Dramer has now occupied. That was shuttered. Val Hoyle's government office that she was in as the Secretary of Labor, I think, of Oregon. That was closed. So I did, a, you know, some Oregon reporting there as well. And we had the Oregon State Capitol closed also during that time, the coronavirus. The two leaders were Democrats and they closed the they made the decision to close the Capitol for the duration of the coronavirus, including for an entire legislative session where no individuals that weren't lawmakers could access our Capitol, too. So similar experience. So Foley, of course, you worked for the Washington Free Beacon, which is obviously a conservative publication, but in many ways also what I would say actually does hard news, right, in the sense of that. There's plenty of other either conservative or liberal publications, which are, I would say, basically just sort of pushing out opinion pieces, or they're not actually doing any sort of original reporting, where, of course, you and many others at the Free Beacon were actually doing original reporting. That leads me to a question, because we focus so much on this podcast on journalism. What is journalism? What exactly is, and I guess I'll ask this from both angles. So, of course, there is what I would say is conservative journalism, but there's also actually a lot of news outlets that would describe themselves as progressive, Right. I'm thinking Slate, I'm thinking Vox, they're also doing original reporting. What makes those sort of, I would say, more explicitly partisan outlets different than, say, the AP or Fox News or MSNBC or New York Times or whatever? I think that the main distinction would be between outlets on the right and left and outlets that purport to have no bias, which is impossible. Everything has bias, right? You guys are exercising journalistic bias by having me on right now instead of someone else. There is no such thing as objective journalism. This is one of my quibbles with the industry, I think, is that a lot of times reporters are hamstrung by ideals that make no sense. Now, I guess it doesn't really matter, but I majored in political science and minored in history. These I mean, political science in particular is one of the most useless things you can possibly study. But it's very important to note that the only training I have in journalism is Journalism 101 and maybe 202 that I took in high school. Uh, that's the only you know class I took that talked about what a lead is or anything like that. So I have zero formal training in journalism. And that's my experience with most of people in conservative media also have no formal training in journalism apart from doing it. I don't know if that's true with people at Slate, but, you know, from my sort of anecdotal experience of seeing, you know, who works at The Washington Post and Politico, most of those people will have, you know, a master's degree in journalism, a a bachelor's degree in journalism, something like that. So the Free Beacon and uh, a thing like, you know, Slate that you were saying, I think they would, outlets like that would have their bias known. And again, I don't say bias pejoratively, everything, everyone has biases. Whereas an outlet like the Washington Post or Politico will not pretend, well, they'll pretend that there is no bias. Their only bias is towards the truth, right? Like the Washington Post, you know, democracy dies in darkness. And I think some some smarter media critics than I, I've sort of 
asked because, you know, the Washington Post may be getting sold by Jeff Bezos so he can buy the god-awful commanders here, right? Which I think has more value than the Washington Post. But I asked sort of when did the Washington Post start, you know, its true demise? And one interesting, you know, flashpoint is when it did switch to that logo of democracy dies in darkness. And that that sort of is when it became the sort of organ of Democratic Party talking points, even more than it was before. But so that's, I think, the main difference is conservative outlets will say, you know, we are conservative, or it will just be very apparent. Liberal outlets will say, you know, we are liberal, we are progressive. And then, you know, you have like the Politicos and the New York Times, they'll they won't pretend to have a bias. But again, they everything has a bias. Yeah. And I I actually I, I think the the thing I liked the most about your answer was actually the very first thing that you said when you were like, there's actually an implicit bias in terms of us having you on as a guest, right? Because we're literally basically picking to give you compared to someone else some sort of platform. And I actually think that's something that especially a lot of the newer outlets like the beacon and then some of the like i like basically i read vox every single week right you know i basically want what i would say are some of those explicit bias decisions to basically you know understand what those sort of folks are thinking so i like that part of your answer in particular but but no so reagan why don't you maybe move us on to to 2022 and we'll go from there yeah so fully uh, appreciate your time here i kind of want to get your take because i i'll kind of I want to reserve mine because I want you to give your take without without the bias in there. I don't want to pre-bias you to my take, but I kind of like to get your view on like what happened in 2022 and what does it inform us in this kind of early stages in preparations for presidential election? One of these elections where the House is up for grabs, the Senate is up for grabs, the presidency is up for grabs, right? So it's a very critical election. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that's a, a broad... Broad question. So I think that, you know, my my take on 2022 was we had some sort of localized red waves, right? We had one unquestionably in Florida. We had one unquestionably in New York. We had some less heralded red waves like in Iowa, where, you know, there is now one mm-hmm. statewide elected Democrat. And, you know, to imagine that even just eight years ago or, you know, 10 years ago or back in 2008, when this was obviously the state that propelled Obama to the presidency is crazy to think about. But so I, I like looking at elections. This is, you know, one of the things that I do. And it's interesting to me also to look at a state like California, which isn't really, I would say, isn't necessarily looked at that much in the context of, you know, 2022 and if there was a red wave. But what I think you can contrast 2022 in California with other states, the reason why I like focusing on it is I bet most people, even in Southern Oregon, maybe they had some of the, you know, the ads splashed their way through bad targeting or something, probably could not even say who the Republican nominee for governor was in California. Mm-hmm. It was a guy named Brian Dahl. Brian Dahl, yeah, I, I don't know. He was a complete stand-in running against Gavin Newsom. He made no news, did not, as far as I know, raise significant amounts of money. But what he didn't do was drag the ticket down. And I think if you were in an environment in 2022 where you had a neutral or ideally uh, net positive top of the ticket candidate, you are likelier than not to have had a red wave materialize there. So you look at states like we just said that we were talking about with New York with Lee Zeldin, obviously he did not win. But I mean, he basically delivered the House majority by having such a strong performance. Obviously, you have Ron DeSantis in Oregon, you know, you have Christine Drazen, who did not win, obviously, but 
the strength of her candidacy, A, of course, focused attention on Oregon for on the Republican side, which, as yep. you guys know, is not something that happens that frequently. And, you know, the counterfactual of if you had had sort of a huge albatross at the top of the ticket there that you did have in other states around the country, you know, do we have the success that we have with like Congresswoman Lori Chavez Duramer winning? It's possible, right? I mean, she won by a large margin. But I think that, you know, you'd much rather be in a situation where you have candidates who help at the top of the ticket than harm. And you look at a state like Pennsylvania, where Doug Mastriano running for governor was absolutely annihilated. You know, I mean, this was a race that was taken off the table as soon as he won the nomination. It's very possible that his failure to even keep it close cost Dr. Oz the election. You know, we're losing the governor's race by nine points instead of I think we lost by 17. If we're losing it by single digits, you know, Dr. Oz can go from losing it by five to winning by one. Not only that, you can look at the House map and you can see how, you know, people like Jeremy Schaefer could be able to win instead of lose for congressional races. So I think, you know, as we'll switch into the 2024 side of things, one of the lessons that I am imparting on anyone as we think about, you know, the next cycle is statewide primaries are immensely consequential. And I mean, you guys in Oregon know on the Republican side, you guys keep nominating Joe Ray Perkins for Senate. Probably shouldn't keep doing that. You know, this is nope. not something that will help you guys. It's fortunate that Drazen, you know, was the, the focus of the attention here. But having a neutral instead of a net negative top of the ticket is something that, you know, can't be stressed enough going forward. So I do want to ask, in terms of 2022, there was also, I think, sort of two sets of races that didn't go particularly well. Some of them were seats, and I can't name any of the specific districts off the top of my head. I'm sure if I Googled them really quickly, I could. Some of like the suburban Virginia seats, for example, that I think a lot of people saw as competitive, didn't even come close, right? There was some that like, <clears throat> they showed the polling is neck and neck, and they'd get blown out by like 10 points. Then there was some other specific races in places like Ohio, of races that I think that we easily should have won, and either due to candidate quality or maybe money raised, or, you know, funds raised or something like that, we didn't perform particularly well. What so, And I think those are the type, sorts of races, right, that basically you need wins in both of those buckets to actually get the quote-unquote red wave, the red tsunami, whatever you might want to call it. What happened in the races like that one? Like, why didn't we do particularly well in suburban Virginia, but then why were we also suffering in places like Ohio, where, you know, Trump is winning by like 10 points or whatever during a presidential year? So to start with letter, what what do you is there something in particular that you're referring to there? I mean, I, I guess as you as you're looking that up, I'll, I'll talk about the first one. I think that, you know, this is, you know, the next two years is sort of the opportunity, you know, the, the best case scenario for Republicans is that we cement the gains that we made in the Trump era while also getting suburban voters to return to the voting patterns that they have been exhibiting for their entire lifetimes. And that's, you know, the open question right now. And I think that if you look at a state like Arizona, right, where Republicans did horribly, this is something that I'm going to be writing about at some point, the top vote getter in Arizona, you know, I'll ask this rhetorically, you let, you know, you're sort of nerdier, cooler listeners think about it. But who is the highest vote getter in Arizona? Do you guys know? So I want to say that it was a candidate for like state treasurer or auditor or something like that. There we go. So it was yeah, the, the state treasurer candidate treasurer. totally blew it out of the water. I think by like exactly. almost 10 points. Yeah. So it was the state treasurer candidate. Kimberly Yee is a Republican and basically ran a normal campaign. And she got more votes than any Democrat, got more votes than any Republican and cruised to victory. So that I think is the 
formula for really a dominant Republican Party going forward is just be normal, right? I mean, Carrie Lake, who ran for governor and lost very narrowly, but she lost, you know, very infamously said, if you in Arizona, she said, if you love John McCain, don't vote for me. And John McCain never came close to losing. You know, that's, you know, Republicans should never be telling people don't vote for us, right? That's, that's not smart. That's, that's not how you win elections. So I think that's sort of a big takeaway. And again, going to, you know, Lee Zeldin in New York, he didn't win, but he came fairly close to winning. I mean, Democrats reallocated tens of millions of dollars to defeating him. So, you know, Republicans who are running sort of, you know, normal campaigns do incredibly well. If, you know, you're like a Doug Mastriano and you're not running a campaign outside of Facebook Lives, you're not going to do well. So that, I think, explains one of the that bucket. Now, as as far as suburbs is, if you do run normal people, that's how you win suburban districts. Right. And again, looking just staying with Arizona real quick. That's how the Maricopa County, Maricopa County is one of the largest suburbs in America. It's basically where I think 70 percent of Arizona voters live, something crazy like that. If you win that, you win. Basically, that's the key to Arizona. And uh, the Maricopa County District Attorney was a Republican, and she won her full term against a Democrat who was backed by George Soros, basically by just focusing on you know crime and public safety. So meanwhile, the candidates on the Republican side who lost, like Carrie Lake and Blake Masters, lost Maricopa County. Okay, so now to your other point, you know, your other bucket of districts like Ohio, I guess, you know, again, I mean, J.D. Vance won Ohio, I think. You know, the point you're making is he won by the delta between him and Mike DeWine, the Republican governor who won, is I think it's double digits. And part of that is, you know, people knew Mike DeWine, you know, he's been an Ohio public figure for longer than we've all been alive when Vance was new. They're also, you know, Democrats love throwing money at candidates who can't win. They do this every two years. You know, in this case, one of them was Tim Ryan in 2020. One of them was now DNC chairman Jamie Harrison. In 2018, it was Amy McGrath in Kentucky. And I mean, Beto O'Rourke, it's every two years, right? So Tim Ryan was a candidate who was never going to win because Ohio does not elect Democrats, right? I mean, Sherrod Brown is up for re-election. He's a Democrat in Ohio. He may be the only Democrat who will ever win in Ohio for the next, you know, 10 plus years. So, but I think the, the Delta was explained in part by A, a very vicious Republican primary on the Senate side in Ohio, almost anomalously so. And that, I think, also hurt us in Pennsylvania uh, on the Senate side. And then B is, you know, Vance was not as popular with the suburban type voters that you're talking about as DeWine was. But obviously, Ohio was just red enough that it didn't really matter. So that's, I think, you know, as you look at the red wave and where it didn't didn't materialize, I think you're right to identify suburbs. But I wouldn't say that there's a nationwide suburban problem on the GOP side. I think that it's important to focus on where we did very much come up short, like a lot of suburban counties here in Maryland. But there are also the keys to winning are right in front of us. And we should, you know, sort of learn from the people who are able to do that. And then the redder areas like Ohio, I think that's where it's important to, you know, capitalize on the gains of the Trump years while also minimizing the losses in the suburbs. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I want to go ahead and move us to talking a little bit about the recent speakers race, which to me was quite confidential for a number of reasons. One, it I don't it didn't top the historical records, but got pretty darn close up there in terms of number of yeah. rounds that it took. I forgot if it was 14, 15 or 16, but I think that one of those 17, numbers is right. 
oh, 17, actually. Okay, in order to actually elect Kevin McCarthy as the Republican Speaker of the House, of course, there was quite a lot of interesting back and forth that we were actually able to see because all the C-SPAN cameras were rolling. You could see members fighting on the floor. I believe that one of the members from Alabama actually at one point tried to lunge at Matt Gates from Florida. That was quite something to see on national television. But give us a rundown basically of what happened in terms of getting McCarthy to speaker, why it took so many votes, and then sort of your general analysis to where you think Speaker McCarthy is at right now. I think that um, basically this is where the failure of the red wave to materialize nationally obviously manifested itself more than we've seen in any other way so far, right? You know, we were expecting what happened in states like Oregon, New York, Florida to happen in Illinois, to happen in Pennsylvania, maybe to happen here in Maryland, to happen in Kansas, to happen in Maine, to happen in New Hampshire. And in a lot of these states, I was just saying, it just didn't happen. And I don't have the answer for why that didn't. Uh, I don't think anyone does yet, but I think it does behoove us to try and, you know, elucidate what what did go wrong in those states. Again, a lot of the times, actually, one point I will make on that real quickly is in a lot of those states, I just said, Illinois, Maryland, New Hampshire, jumped to mind, but Michigan as well, Democratic organizations spent, I think, around $100 million in Republican primaries advertising to Republican voters, the candidates who Republican voters should not support, which then, of course, is this reverse psychology that makes Republicans then support them. This was an incredibly successful tactic by Democrats that was criticized by a ton of elected Democrats in their own party as being undemocratic. It did pay off for the Democrats because every single race on the Republican side where Democrats spent any money, the Democrats won. So I think that, you know, as the GOP looks to 24 and beyond, it is an incredibly important point to realize that in a lot of elections, Democrats are spending more in Republican primaries than Republicans. And that doesn't make any sense. Now to the speaker's race, that's how, you know, again, if you have a disastrous top of the ticket and really stellar lower down races, it's still hard for those lower down races to win just because, you know, as is always the case, the top of the ticket, people usually know more about that than they do the bottom, you know, the lower down races. So this is where the red wave not materializing was a problem. You know, if we had the 40, 50, 60, whatever seat majority that very much looked possible in the days heading into the election, right? I mean, you know, I think that it wouldn't have been crazy for Alex Garlados and Mike Erickson to have won in Oregon, right? It wouldn't even have been crazy for Christine Drazen to have won in Oregon. If those things had happened, then if you have between five and up to 20 people who are not going to vote for, in this case, Kevin McCarthy, but really for anyone for speaker, it simply doesn't matter, right? I mean, Pelosi has had defections from her speaker's votes in the past, mainly for people who wanted to vote against her so that it wouldn't be used in attack ads against them. But their dissent from a speaker's vote, even on the first and only vote, is not really that uncommon anymore. The problem here, though, was the majority that Republicans had was so slim, it was a five-seat majority, it left very little room for error. And so I wrote an article about this where basically I granted anonymity to everyone who I interviewed to talk about this, whether it was members of Congress, former members of Congress, staff, et cetera, to get a sense of what went down. And I think in my estimation, you know, McCarthy's opponents will claim that there was an alternative and that they had a plan for there to be a speaker who was not named Kevin McCarthy. I don't think that that ever would have happened. 
I believe Lori Travis Ramer was one of the many Republicans who pledged publicly to only ever vote for Kevin McCarthy. And there was immense amounts of frustration expressed to me privately and expressed publicly from the, you know, I think it's basically 87%, I think, of the Republican caucus every single time was voting for Kevin McCarthy. And there was a, a lot of the people who were in that camp would tell me, I'm never going to vote for whoever this very small minority wants, because the precedent that this would set is terrible. So I just don't think where you in a caucus that is incredibly loyal to Kevin McCarthy, that you were ever going to see an actual alternative rise. And, you know, there were a variety of concessions. It remains to be seen how serious most of them are, but there were concessions made. But I think that it was always a matter of when, not if McCarthy was going to become the speaker. But, you know, it did not look good for Republicans to, you know, show, hey, you've entrusted us with the keys to Congress. And, you know, we've made oversight and accountability such a strong central issue of our localized and national campaigns that, you know, we can't get our own house in order here. And I think that that was very apparent, obviously, to the people who were in, you know, in these scenes at the time. It'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens going forward, what, you know, the trust within the caucus, how this sort of plays out. But I think there was no real alternative ever that was going to happen. Because ultimately, these are people we're dealing with. And it's, you know, it would be, I mean, you know, people like Don Bacon from Nebraska said, like, he called, he compared his Republican opponents to the Taliban. You know, he was never going to say, oh, you know, you guys want this person. I'm never going to support who you want, because that's like the worst form of negotiating ever. I think, though, people were surprised at how many people there were. And this mm-hmm. is one of the questions I would ask to the, the anti-McCarthy camp. You know, why did some people sort of keep their cards closer to their vests and Sometimes I think there were strategic reasons for that. Other times I think they just did. But as I was watching it, it was never, it was always Kevin, right? There was never going to be anyone else. And I think that as far as looking at possible leaders, I mean, there's no one who's done more to get us that House majority in America than Kevin McCarthy, right? Like between CLF, between Take Back the House, between everything that he's done, he has raised at least a quarter of a billion dollars for to elect House Republican majority. Sometimes, you know, depending on how you look at it, upwards of over half a billion dollars, no one comes close. And so, you know, it was to the extent that anyone can earn the right to be Speaker of the House, there's no doubt in my mind, Kevin McCarthy earned that a million times over. Yep. So, Foley, what do you think about your best guesstimate? And it doesn't have to be really finite, but like, I think there's a couple different paths that people kind of see forward for the next Congress in terms of specifically the House, because the House has to pass stuff, then they got to negotiate with the Democratic-controlled Senate and then get something to the desk that Biden can sign. Do you think it's more likely that the House kind of is able to hold their slim majority and pass through stuff? Or do you think there's going to be a bunch of bipartisan deals with, you know, Main Street or Problem Solvers Caucus type members and stuff like that, kind of cutting deals that have you know, a bunch of votes from, you know, Republican caucus or a bunch of votes from the Democratic caucus and then kind of cross over. I mean, or do you think that McCarthy is going to be able to hold them and, and advance what they need to to negotiate with Senate Democrats? It's a good question. I think that, I mean, it's very possible that there will be, I mean, a lot of what the Republican agenda is, is wildly popular. And one of the things that I look at as sort of an example of the Republican majority straight up getting Democrats to vote for its agenda. There was very, I don't think any compromise in it at all, was the creation of Select Committee on China. And Mm -hmm. uh, every single Republican voted for that. I think like over 100 Democrats voted for it. It's going to be a bipartisan committee because, you know, this is 
in my estimation, ultimately, like American politics is not about Republicans and Democrats. It is about Americans versus the Chinese Communist Party. And and that is a recognition that really anyone acting in good faith of either political party will recognize that there is no doubt that this is a greater threat than anything you know happening domestically. So that I think is you know a way that of bipartisanship without any real compromising of them. I mean, that was a central campaign pledge of every Republican running for Congress, and they got over 100 Democrats on board. I mean, there will obviously be times, I'm sure, where there will be just party line votes, but there is definite room for bipartisanship. And I think there was never any reason for Democrats under Pelosi to not have created a committee on this. And this is like a great example, to my mind, of what Republicans can talk about of, of a good thing. This is what you gave us the House of Representatives. Like, this was never going to happen. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, as we look at the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, there have been Democrats who've expressed frustration with that. What level of bipartisanship will there be there? I think that, you know, the question of if Biden is going to run for re-election is sort of looms over all of this, right? If Biden is going to run for re-election and there will be no intra-party challenger, I think that figuring out what went down in Afghanistan, where Biden assured us this would not look like another Saigon, and then it literally looked like another Saigon. If he's running for re-election, I think there will be very little desire to criticize him. And one of the reasons why I think it's good for the country that Republicans have at least one of the chambers of Congress is, I know this from being a reporter, there is zero desire amongst mainstream press to have accountability in this administration. A lot of the stories that I've reported on that have led to congressional investigations have been me reporting about corruption, conflicts of interest, various problems with Biden administration figures that any reporter could have done. You know, this was the tools I had at my disposal were things that anyone could have done, but there's no interest amongst, you know, the mainstream media to do any sort of reporting on the level that they did with the Trump administration in the Biden administration, right? I mean, and a really a great way of looking at this is David Farron told that the Washington Post won Pulitzer Prizes for basically sitting in the Trump hotel and going through, you know, receipts in the trash can and things like that. You know, right now we know that Biden took classified documents to the Penn Center and places like this. There's no one camping outside there, you know, trying to see, trying to get, uh, you know, CCTV of who's been going in there. There's there's no curiosity when it comes to exposing malfeasance of Democrats. I mean, malfeasance happens in both parties, but it's very concerning to me as an American, to me as a consumer of news that I know, and this was one of the reasons I wanted to become a journalist after the 2020 cycle was Democrats have full control of the government. It's going to be a great time to be a new reporter because I know that, you know, the journalists who spent four years, you know, investigating every single possible, you know, aspect of the Trump administration, you know, down to like interns in the White House, they're on vacation. And, uh, you know, that's a great opportunity for me to enter that, you know, uncharted territory. Yeah. And so, Matt, I want to jump into and talk a little bit about 2024, specifically on the GOP side of things. And I want to leave Trump actually out of the equation right now, just because everybody knows he's running. He you know, announced a few events this week. I believe he's swinging through New Hampshire, maybe not this week, but in the coming weeks, at least New Hampshire, South Carolina. He's kind of making the early round states, which I think a lot of people have been wondering when that was going to happen. It's finally happening. But there was an article recently, for example, that Mike Pence's super PAC or political organization, which I believe is called Advancing American Freedom, recently stole a top staffer from Nikki Haley's organization. His name is Tim Chapman. He's very well known. He used to run Heritage Action. I actually worked with him and some of his guys a little bit when I was working for the Trump PAC. You know, Tim Scott has like 
$20 million or something like that in the super PAC that was given to him by Larry Ellison. Hasn't really openly said he's interested in running, but to me that set off some alarm bells, seemed pretty suspicious in terms of his interests. Of course, a lot of people talk about Governor DeSantis as a candidate. You know, he's continued to keep a lot of his campaign team on some sort of political payroll. They're doing a lot of social media, really starting to push things out. So, you know, what do you think in terms of and my main question is this, right? Because everybody is really considering if they want to jump in versus Trump or not. When do you actually think that we start seeing other candidates throw their hat in the ring? Like, is it going to be in the next couple of months? And the reason I ask why is because someone actually reminded me before, but the first debates on the GOP side of the aisle actually started taking in, in the last, uh, in the uh, 2016 cycle, actually started taking place in late 2015. Of course, we're not in late 2023 yet, but I believe the first debate either took place in, I think it was August, if I'm not mistaken. If I am, it, it was September. And of course, we're almost already in February and nobody has even declared yet except for Trump. And again, I think Trump staying in the race, continuing to run, continuing to raise lots of money. There's new polls coming out basically showing him ahead of Biden, showing him ahead of DeSantis. Like I, I do think that's going to scare quite a few candidates away. But again, when do you think we're going to actually start seeing people jump in who have sort of been hinting at that they're going to do this for a while, but really I've just been staying kind of in the dark mode so far, raising money and staffing up. But when do people actually start jumping in? What I usually look at in my journalism is what everyone is not looking at. That's where I can do a lot of, you know, original stuff. So the White House and the presidential stuff has, until it's the Biden White House, when, you know, again, journalists just don't cover this, right? You know, this is my value add is much more minimal when it comes to the most national and most paid attention to things. So I would say, you know, I probably have as much original insight here as anyone else, but on the off chance any of this is in any way novel, I would say that in a lot of the cases, what you have to look at if it's someone is a sitting elected official like DeSantis, you know, like Christy Nome, like Greg Abbott, people like this, especially who are governors of their state, you have to look at when their state legislature is meeting. And it's very possible that Sometimes, you know, they'll want to jump in while their state legislature is in session. Other times they'll want to wait until their state legislature is out of session. Then you have people who are not in elected office anymore, like Pence, like Mike Pompeo, like Nikki Haley. So you have fewer constraints for those sorts of people or even, you know, United States senators like Tim Scott, like Rick Scott. I'm sure there are other senators looking at running for president. So they have fewer constraints sort of within their own calendar. I think that with all of that being said, at a certain point, and, and Youngkin, obviously, on the governor side as well. With all of that being said, I think that by February, you know, you're going to want to have, if you're a, another presidential candidate, you're going to want to sort of make things official that comes with, as Trump knows, FEC requirements of campaign spending and things like that. You know, as soon as Trump became a candidate, the RNC was no longer able to foot his legal bills because he's now a candidate for presidency and they're, you know, stridently remaining neutral. So it'll be interesting to see when that happens. You know, you again, as you were saying, you know, you have Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo already sort of sniping at each other right now. I don't know what incentive there is to make it official, but they're basically making it all but official at this point. So I expect by February, some more people will get in. And it'll be interesting on the debate stage, the RNC, I think, is going to be basically in a change from uh, 2016, where John Harwood right, who's basically the White House's stenographer at this point, was moderating a Republican presidential debate, I think there will be much less willingness to basically have liberal journalists dictate the future of the Republican Party. This is obviously something that does happen on Capitol Hill. I saw this when I was there, not even covering the speaker's vote, but just spectating. 
basically every reporter there was either someone who is liberal or who works at a liberal outlet. There is no recognition on the conservative side that it's important to have a press corps in Washington, D.C. on the Capitol. So, you know, I would see reporters basically setting the stage for the GOP debate, even though these people have never voted for a Republican and will never vote for a Republican. Why do they have as much say as they have just because they're sitting there? And that goes back to how horrible it was that the Capitol was closed for two years. The only people who could get in unencumbered were journalists, were credentialed journalists. Again, I, when I was reporting how the Capitol was closed, had to be escorted around by Capitol staff. Meanwhile, credentialed members of the Capitol Hill Press Corps, who I would walk by during my reporting, literally on one occasion, I was walking by a closed office right here, very obviously not not open, hadn't been open for months, if not years. And I see a reporter, they ask me what I'm doing. I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm doing your job. And I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm here for some meetings. I'm not going to give them my story. But even if I had, I had no doubt that they would never have written it because, and I think one of the reasons why they wouldn't have written it is because they would have lost their access to the Democratic side of the aisle. But theoretically, if you're a reporter, you want to seek truth. That's just not how it works in, in reality. So I think by February, you'll probably have a couple more candidates jumping in, in large part because why not, right? I mean, at that point, you'll be one of the only other people officially in the race. So you have to be covered. You know, if you're a lesser tier candidate, I would get in now, right? As opposed to waiting when there are 17 of you and you're just one of the 17. If you jump in now, then it's it's you and Donald Trump are the only people in the race. So if you're a, a heavier tier candidate like DeSantis, you know, probably wait a little bit longer. There's not necessarily as much of a need because someone like that has already so much national name ID, right? I mean, in 2016, and as you go farther back and further back, you know, if you're a governor in particular, but if you're a senator, people in Iowa don't hear about you, right? People in New Hampshire don't hear about you. Now, you know, if you're a Fox News mainstay, most Republican primary voters know who you are. So you have less of a need to sort of ramp up really quickly and get your you know, presence established in these states. Because again, like so much of this is nationalized, even though Iowa is voting first, they probably already know who Ron DeSantis is. Well, and Alex, I think you wanted to, you know, you're kind of bypassing Trump at the front end, but like Trump's rollout being, how do I put this diplomatically, less than ideal, probably encouraged more candidates to stay out longer because without a particular thing to focus on and attack, whether it's primary opponents or Biden, Trump kind of seems to have made more mistakes during that time. And so I think it's keeping, like like Foley said, some of those bigger tier candidates just saying, you know, we're going to keep our powder dry for a while before we have to get in. And then I just I'd seen a clip of Ben Shapiro and he was basically talking about, like, what does a smart Republican do when they're faced with all these attacks from Trump? And every time that DeSantis has kind of either been alluded to by Trump or talked about, he's just kind of ignored it and kept doing what he's doing. Right. And so I think that's probably one of the things you'll see, too, is like even when candidates get in, they probably won't talk very much about Trump. They're going to try to focus on what they care about, which I think to kind of circle it back and wrap everything up a little bit, Foldy is kind of basically what you're, you know, you weren't, you weren't talking about Trump specifically. There's a lot of ideology and stuff that Republicans have that's not directly about Trump that still caused us trouble in some of these critical seats. And so these candidates are going back to not being obsessed with whatever the news story of the day is or whatever the, you know, the mainstream media is trying to get them to talk about for the day, but they're focused on what their platform is and whatever they think is going to help them be most successful in their elections based on what their voters are telling them they care about. And so if that's what the candidates end up doing, then I think you'll see a pretty competitive Republican primary for president. And to that end, I, I have two thoughts. One, a lot of the reporting that I do is about the issues that Republicans campaigned on, you know, China, corruption, accountability, things like this you know, stay on message or don't, as you just said, don't, you know, get distracted by, you know, whatever you think 
is the issue of the day. And I, you know, I try and do that with my reporting. And then the other point, you know, when you guys are exercising your journalistic bias to pick the Democratic equivalent of me for the episode, I think that it is <laughs> worth looking at the 60s as an analogy to what's going on now with, again, I mean, with Saigon and Afghanistan, but also with LBJ basically being forced from running for election, mm. ultimately mm. by losing the New Hampshire primary. But, you know, right now it's sort of open season on Joe Biden and Democrats are starting to criticize him. So, you know, is there, you know, Ron Klain is now leaving the White House. It'll be interesting to see, you know, is this, is someone going to challenge him? And if someone does, I mean, everyone knows American history. If president is primaried seriously by a member of their own party, they lose. So is Klobuchar going to do it? I mean, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, these, you know, older you know, more retread people, they're not getting any younger, right? So, and you see this possibly with Chris Christie, certainly with Mitch Daniels, you know, you only have a certain window to run for president, right? And if you're Elizabeth Warren, are you going to step aside for Joe Biden to run? I mean, Joe Biden will be 86 in 2028. Does anyone really think that he's going to want to do this? I don't know, maybe some Democrats do. But I think that if you're, you know, an older boomer Democrat who wants to be president, now is your time. Biden's never looked weaker you know, what's going to happen. And this happens at the exact same time that Feinstein in California is being talked about as potentially not running because of her age. It's so fascinating to see it applied differently depending on who you are. So Matthew, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. I have two questions before I let you leave. Well, actually, one may be easy. One may not be easy for you. The other one will be easy. You're a Maryland guy. You know the Hogan people. Is he going to run for president or is it is it fake? I don't think it's fake. I don't know. I've, you know, with my journalism hat on, I'm trying to, you know, look at the answers to that question. And, you know, the best sense I got is, you know, we just switched from Hogan to Westmore as governor. And I think that as Hogan was there for the inauguration of Westmore, he could not help but think, all right, well, this is awesome. You know, I, I can do this. I could be president. And I think he'll be bored. So I don't know if, you know, he's the kind of person who, He's bored and now he's not governor, so he decides to be president or to run for president, or is he bored and he's no longer governor and he wants to return to normal life? I think I would say, again, just as a Maryland person looking at you know this sort of news, I would say he's probably likelier than not to run again now that he's not governor. There's none of those legislative session time constraints we were talking about. So I think that would be my sense there, but that's that's sort of conjecture. And I think I mean, he's, done an, he's done an amazing job here. And my, you know, point that I make to Maryland Republicans, some of whom are, you know, disappointed or frustrated with some of the things he, do, he did while in office is, we're going to miss the hell out of this guy when Democrats have now full control of our state to do whatever they would want here. As a resident of Oregon, where Democrats have held full control of the state legislature since 2009, and statewide office for much longer than that. Uh, yikes. And um, the other thing I think my prediction on Larry, well, I guess it's not so much the prediction as analysis. I think one of these things that they do where they say they're exploring for office, everyone thinks that's fake. It's not fake. He's looking to see if there's enough support in the lane that he's kind of existed in in Maryland, which is this kind of, you know, competent Republican governor that that is really focused on fiscal, a lot more on fiscal policy, good government policy. He's looking to see if there's a nationwide lane for him to run in. How crowded is his lane? Is there fundraising potential? All that stuff. So I think all that testing is real, and he's trying to make a real decision about, is there a lane here? And if he figures out there isn't one, he's not going to run. But if he thinks there is, if the conservatives, you know, if there's a big 
group of conservatives that run just like they did in 2016. I think he's going to look for that Chris Christie style lane. And I think he's kind of watching. I think they kind of overlap. They're both blue state governors who had really good local records. And he's trying to see if that's going to translate and if there's going to be too much crowding in his lane. Yeah. So. All right. Well, Matthew, thank you so much what for joining the pod. Question? Uh, well, I was getting to my second question. Oh, my okay. second question is <laughs> like uh, if any of our humble followers want to follow your craziness, maybe see your crazy Twitter feed, maybe really subscribe to someone who is not aligned with their political beliefs. Where do they find you? Where do they go to find your work? You know, usually I, I tweet my work at just Matthew Foldy. That's that's probably the best place to find me. Okay. Matthew sure. Foldy on Twitter. Well, everybody that was thank- a really easy question. That was a phenomenally easy. Question. I told you that was going to be easy. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, well, Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the show. And everybody, thanks again for listening. Uh, please make sure to check us out on YouTube. Again, you can see the lovely fireman outfit uh, that Foldy is wearing. And uh, make sure to give us five stars uh, rating on Apple Podcasts if your platform so does allow. And we will see you again next week. Thanks so much.